Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. And of course, Policy Forum Pod is produced right here at Crawford by policyforum.net. The Crawford School is Australia's leading graduate public policy school. We offer a huge range of degree programs, short courses and executive education. And you can check out what we've got on offer at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. With the health, social and economic toll of the COVID-19 pandemic climbing, low and middle income countries have been hard hit. Within those countries, including across the Asia-Pacific region, the existing gaps in health and social protection systems have been further exposed, and the most vulnerable individuals and social groups are in desperate need of support. And in the past couple of weeks here on the pod, we've looked at the impacts of COVID-19 in India and across the Pacific, and particularly in PNG. The research that my colleagues and I have done in Indonesia, alongside a growing body of research, also highlight the ways in which COVID-19 is impacting very differently on specific social groups, deepening pre-existing disadvantage and impacting differently on women and on men, often deepening pre-existing gender inequities. In the context of the global pandemic, assistance to developing countries has a greater role to play than ever both in addressing the direct impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and in supporting longer-term sustainable development. The OECD target that wealthy countries allocate 0.7% of GMP to overseas development assistance has never been achieved by Australia. Following the 2021-22 budget, forward estimates for the aid budget show that it is set to fall every year between now and 2024-25. And in Australia, there's been a downward trend in development assistance since the 2014-15 budget. Australia's aid spending per capita has dropped since 1995 and in 2020 ranked 21st in terms of development assistance as a percentage of gross national income amongst OECD members of the DAC or the Development Assistance Committee, despite Australia having the 10th largest economy of that group. 
So what is the impact on this in terms of the reach and effectiveness of Australia's aid program and how can policymakers improve the way they think about and deliver development assistance? We have two excellent guests with us in the studio today to discuss some of these questions. Stephen Howes is Professor of Economics and Director of the Development Policy Centre at the Crawford School. Prior to joining Crawford, Stephen was Chief Economist at the Australian Agency for International Development, or AusAid. He's worked at the world, with the World Bank in Washington and in Delhi, and worked on the Ghana Review on Climate Change, where he managed the review's international work stream. And Stephen is also Chair of Family PNG, an NGO that supports survivors of family and sexual violence in Papua New Guinea and does incredible work there. Stephen, it's great to have you with us. Welcome. Hi, thanks, Sharon. We also have Sally Moyle joining us today. Sally is an Honorary Associate Professor at the ANU Gender Institute here at the ANU. Until August 2019, Sally was the Chief Executive Officer at Care Australia. Between 2013 and 2016, she was Principal Gender Specialist and Assistant Secretary at the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Sally has had a long career holding many senior roles across government departments, including the Australian Human Rights Commission and the Australian Law Reform Commission. Uh, She's practised as a lawyer and is one of Australia's leading advocates on gender equity. Welcome, Sally. Great to have you here. Thank you, Sharon. So I wanted to to have a look today at ODA spending in the recent budget. But before we go there, let's just begin with some of the absolute basics. Stephen, why does overseas development assistance matter? And why should Australia, particularly in these difficult times, be allocating spending to other countries? Uh, Right. Well, I'd say ODA matters as uh, one of the tools Australia has uh, to benefit developing countries, and uh, that matters uh, from a number of different perspectives. You know, as from a humanitarian point of view, you know, we there are a lot of people. Uh, most of the poor people in the world are, you know, still living in developing countries. So there's a, an obligation to help them. But you know, you can also say it's it's in our national interest to provide support to these countries, which is why every country, every rich country does it. And in fact, an increasing number of sort of middle-income developing countries also have their own their own aid program. Yeah, it's 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 not the only way in which uh, Australia uh, supports or interacts with the outside world. I think that's uh, important to keep in mind, and and it may not be the most important, but as a as a government instrument, it's probably the, it's the most direct, and and it it takes on this high profile. Uh, every budget, um, because the you know the amount of ODA uh, is is such a visible indicator, I guess, of our of our stance uh, as a nation. Going to current times, I think you know what you said. A lot of people expected that aid budgets would be slashed with the pandemic, as countries naturally sort of turn in. But in fact, uh, worldwide, we've seen aid budgets go up. Uh, the twenty twenty uh, global aid from OECD countries set a record. Uh, and even Australia, that as you mentioned in your intro, Australia has been cutting aid, but Australia itself also, uh, we increased aid this year uh, in recognition of, of the pandemic. And again, it's that mix of motives. Uh, first, it is a humanitarian crisis. Uh, you know, we have an obligation to respond, and most Australians support that. But also, yeah, it's clearly in our national interest, and uh, you know, no country can be safe from this pandemic until all countries are safe. So we have seen a, perhaps despite initial expectations, we have seen a rebound 
in foreign aid. Uh, but I guess you know what was disappointing. What we could go on to talk about was that it wasn't sustained uh, in this budget for the for the coming years. And and we want to go into into that and the the implications of that in a bit more detail. But Sally, I, I wanted to ask you a, a similar question, but particularly around issues of gender equality and human rights. What role does ODA broadly and Australia's ODA in particular? play on those really important issues. Mm, thanks, Sharon. Um, look, I think very at a very high level, if you look at a person's budget, if you look at a budget, it tells you about values and it tells you about what the government cares about and where, where it puts its money and where the difficult decisions it makes around prioritising spending decisions tells us what we care about. And and so I think it's it's a shame for Australia to have such a low, an ongoingly low um, ODA budget. I, I, I don't think it's the right thing to do. Uh, and as Stephen's pointed out, not only is it the right thing to do, it's also in our national interests because we know that development assistance helps to provide um, to the to the extent that it can, it provides helps to provide prosperity in the region in which we live, um, stability and security. We know that there are outcomes from each of these um, for each of these outcomes from from inputs around gender equality. So, greater gender equality has been shown time and time again to deliver better outcomes um, for economic growth, for security and stability. And we know now it runs both ways. The causes run both ways. Not only does economic security deliver better gender equality opportunities, but there's evidence as well that gender equality helps to deliver better economic growth. So let's have a look now at what happened um, recently in the federal budget and and dig a little deeper into Australia spending on ODA. Stephen, you noted that this year the the level of aid has been maintained, but you also noted in your budget night blog that Australia's 2021-22 budget failed against three tests that you identified as being particularly important. Can you talk us through what those three tests are and how the budget failed to meet those in relation to our ODA commitments and our, our ODA program? Uh, sure. I mean, yeah, I think it's important to, to start with the good news, uh, which is that the aid is higher this year. Uh, so we're now in the twenty, coming to the end of the twenty twenty one year. It's higher this year than last year, and that that does reverse, uh, you know, almost a decade of aid cuts. Uh, so that that's very welcome. And those were announcements uh, made by the government uh, in relation uh, to COVID, both the health and the economic aspects of it. Uh, so that was the good news, and I think people went into the budget with some optimism that there'd be more good news. But yeah, that's where it disappoint. That that's where it disappointed. So the three tests I laid out were one: would there be any further increases in aid next year? Uh, because this year's almost finished, and uh, clearly, you know, the pandemic isn't going away. Uh, even in Australia, we're still struggling, but definitely overseas, uh, it's probably getting worse uh, rather than better. You know, if we just look at our immediate region, we see countries like Papua New Guinea, Fiji, uh, Timor-Leste that had done fairly well in insulating themselves from the pandemic. They now seem they have much higher numbers. We, we thought there might be more uh, aid increases uh, in the in in the next year, that is in the budget year, 21-22, uh, but they didn't eventuate. Uh, then, you know, I was interested to see what would happen uh, in the forward estimate period, that three-year period after the budget year, because, again, this is not – something that's going to go away quickly and, uh, you know, there'd be a strong case for sustaining, at least sustaining the initial aid increases announced, if not going further. But that didn't happen either. And then, um, 
You know, the third sort of aspect that, uh, or the third test I posed, you know, it seems bewilderingly simple and it's difficult to explain how the government could fail it. It was simply whether the government would give an estimate of how much aid we're giving mm. uh, this year and next year. And actually they didn't. <laughs> you know, it's a it's a somewhat uh, bizarre, uh, complex uh, setup, but the government wants to present the aid budget now as having a kind of permanent base and then having these COVID supplements. And it doesn't want to actually add the two together, even though it admits they're both foreign aid. And if you try to think about why it's doing that, um, you know, I think the only sort of the, the only way to make sense of it is that the government doesn't want to generate any expectation that these temporary increases will be made permanent. They're just there for a couple of years and then they're meant to disappear. Uh, but it is a bizarre situation where the government uh, delivers an aid budget and can't actually say what the bottom line is. Mm. And it suggests that, you know, the government, you know, is not even trying uh, to take the Australian public along with it. You know, yeah. I think there could be quite a actually strong support uh, for uh, this aid, you know, given the situation we're in, given that people recognise, you know, Australia can't be safe until other countries are safe. But, um, yeah, the government is just very sort of allergic to going down that route and wants to t play a very kind of softly, softly approach to the extent of not even talking about how much aid mm -hmm. we're actually giving. So, Stephen, what are the implications of that for the effectiveness of Australian aid? Now, we've got one issue around the amount, but but what about the effectiveness? Yeah, definitely. So, amount is, uh, yeah, it's not the be-all and end-all. You're totally right. And and effectiveness is uh, as important, if not more important. Um, I mean, effectiveness is, is extremely difficult to um, assess, and, and I'd be wary of, um, you know, making sweeping judgments. Uh, there are a number of interesting changes that have happened as a result of the pandemic. I, you know, weren't that, that we've sort of been forced into, but are probably being good. You know, so it's made the A program rely more on uh, on local actors um, because a lot of the expatriates that have traditionally delivered the A program have actually gone home. You know, because of health risks, and so those local actors uh, could be NGOs, uh, could be governments. Um, but I think a lot of people have um, argued that this is the future of aid. I don't know, you might have heard about the localization agenda. Uh, somehow it hasn't really uh, gotten legs uh, in the development space until until now. Um, so, yeah, I think, since, I think some broadly speaking, some good things have happened with effectiveness uh, in the response to COVID. And I'd also... Uh, say these, you know, the new money that has been released. Uh, a lot of that seems to have gone, you know, to be to being spent well on some of it on some very basic services like health education. And there has been also a strong uh, gender focus on the uh, the allocation of that that funding, which is welcome. Um, but yeah, stepping back, I just say, you know, transparency is obviously very important uh, for aid. And if the government. Uh, is not prepared to say how much aid we're spending. And if the department is likewise sort of conniving with the government in this respect and also not prepared to say how much aid we are, I think, you know, transparency is really taking a hit. Mm. And when transparency is taking a hit, um, you know, you worry about aid effectiveness and you just worry that kind of, you know, it's it's the politics and the spin that are taking the front seat and, and effectiveness is being forced into a, into a back seat. Can I just add, though, that um, as well, one of the things we know is part of effectiveness is 
certain ongoing funding. You know, you need to be there for the long term. And for for the government to have, you know, fits and starts to provide supplements here and supplements there that don't continue makes it really difficult to plan for the long term. I mean, so frankly, does it if if you're pegged to gross national income, for example, and, and you've got the uh, quantum of aid going up and down. I remember back in the day when I was in DFAT in AusAid in the days when the aid program was growing really fast. And that was hard for effectiveness as well. People were, um, you know, turning on a dime to know how much you were going to have to spend the next year and it made it difficult for proper planning and delivery of effective aid. But likewise, in this opposite days, when we've got a very low base of aid with supplements added every year, it, it does get really hard for aid programmers to make decisions um, and particularly if you can only program for a year at a time without certainty. Sally, can you tease that out a bit in terms of what it means for gender equality particularly? Because this is an issue for the long term and it's mm-hmm. often involving generational change. That's right. So so can you can you talk us through what happens to programs that are focusing on gender equality when we're in this very uncertain environment of yes. fits and starts? Yes. Well, the Gender Equality Fund um, is a wonderful uh, program that the government has committed to. It's been in place now for five years or so, and up until now it's been an annual program without any certainty for the future. So the aid programmers were only really able to con- to commit for a year or two maximum because they weren't sure of where the money, whether the money was going to continue. Now the government's committed to um, enable four-year programming, which means that there's a possibility for longer-term programming that delivers better, more considered development outcomes. So that's great. Um, likewise, the Pacific uh, Women Leading Pacific Development Program that was announced back in 2012, I think, um, that was 10-year funding. So that kind of thing gives us the ability to program for the long term and to really lay the foundations and the seeds for building relationships that we know underpin um, changes towards gender equality. So one of the things I always talk about is perhaps one of our most effective contributions to development in the Pacific has been the really long-term funding that we've provided to organisations like Fiji Women's Crisis Service. You know, we did that. Sometimes it was $100,000 a year. You know, sometimes it was a bit more when we could afford it. But since 1989, effectively, and it was Australia's contribution at a time in the Pacific where you couldn't really talk about gender equality. It wasn't acceptable. Uh, It was seen as a colonial import. Um, It it enabled the Pacific women themselves to develop a, a native Indigenous um, women's rights movement. Uh, and it's over that period of that long extended period of time has really seen the burgeoning of a, a vibrant and active women's movement and all power to those, the, you know, pioneer women um, and all power to Australia for, for, for providing that funding over that long period of time. I think that's such a powerful example. I think the the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre, but that movement more broadly mm-hmm. has been just so important. That's right. you know, across the Pacific. That's right, so. and, it, and it's it is homegrown. You know, there is an active women's movement in the Pacific. It's not Australia, um, you know, bringing external norms into the Pacific. It's homegrown. So the kind of localization that we're now talking about that's right. actually happening in practice. That's right. Stephen, I I wanted to talk a little about some of the trends that we're seeing. You and your team at the Development Policy Centre have um, developed the Australian Aid Tracker. Um, And for any of our listeners that haven't had a look at that Aid Tracker, it's available on the Development Policy Centre's website and it's really worth having a look at the work around that. So that shows that ODA spending in Australia has fallen as a percentage of the overall 
federal budget over several decades. Um, and the tracker shows a decline as a percentage of GNI, Sally taking into account the problems of pinning to, mm. to gross national income. Um, and you're projecting a fall to just 0.18% by 2024-25 from a peak some kind of 40 or 50 years ago. What explains this continuous decline? And I'm really interested in this question, particularly given that a lot of the public value surveys that we see tend to indicate a pretty strong level of support for ODA amongst the Australian population. So Mm. so what do you think is driving this decline? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. I might just uh, pick up on something Sally said and then um, come back to that. I mean, I, I totally – I just want to endorse what she said about long-term funding. I just think that's uh, that's essential, especially in, um, you know, the so-called fragile states. Mm. Australia works in. If you go to a country like Papua New Guinea, yeah, you really need to take that long-term approach. Um, but I just want to highlight one more thing that – so it's not to disagree with what Sally said at all, but just, you know, that this, this COVID has been an emergency. And in Australia, we've responded very quickly with um, with funding uh, domestically through programs like JobKeeper and JobSeeker. But if we actually look at the um, the aid program, you know, the aid spending actually slowed down uh, in the second half of 2020. Yeah, we actually know that because um, the OECD data is reported on a calendar year basis. So Australia had to report the second mm. six months of uh, 2020, and we were about we were one of the very few countries that actually cut aid. I mentioned that aid has uh, increased worldwide. And our aid has increased uh, from for the fiscal year, 20, 2021, but not in the 2020 year. So I just think, just going back to your question about effectiveness, I'd say that's one area uh, where we, we should have responded a lot a lot more quickly. We should have pivoted. We had a lot of talk about pivoting, <laughs> but I don't think we actually pivoted quickly enough to make sure the money kept going out the door. Mm. So just wanted to round off the effectiveness discussion. For our listeners, we'll come back to this issue of the long-term decline, but I just wanted to, to pick up on that issue of the, the failure to pivot. Stephen, were other countries doing it more effectively than Australia? Did we see, do we see examples around the world of where that happened well? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And, you know, we yeah, we just don't see uh, in the OECD data. You don't see the same phenomenon in other countries. There are a few other countries that cut aid, um, but it's like the UK, and the UK does tie their aid to GNI, and then their GNI. You know, they're a point seven. Their GNI went backwards, so they actually cut aid. So you can see a deliberate cut like that. But you know, over just the overall, the fact that aid increased, um, it does suggest uh, Australia uh, struggled. Uh, in that regard, I mean, I think our our aid program has traditionally been so dominated um, by uh, contractors and um, international NGOs that um, it, we did really find it difficult to move away from that very quickly. You know, I'm sure it is picking up now, which is which is a good thing. But I think it's a it's a sobering lesson. Um, but yeah, going on to your question about the uh, ODA GNI ratio and uh, generosity, I mean, it's a it's a complex issue. But yeah, we we have uh, it is something to reflect on. I think as a as a country, you know, I always uh, stress that the decision to scale up the aid program uh, began with John Howard. Mm. So you know, it was actually a conservative government uh, back in two thousand and five that decided they would double the aid program, and then Rudd just. Um, you know, extended that decision on and said that you keep pushing the trajectory up uh, to reach 0.5. And it, it did have bipartisan support. But yeah, that bipartisan support just fell away over time. And pretty much by the time the coalition had been elected, had disappeared. 
And although they first at first promised they would uh, protect the aid program, that is not cut it at all. Yeah, that that promise didn't last mm-hmm. long, and and they ended up with these uh, severe cuts, uh, and that's what's now uh, driving the that downward movement of ODA to GNI. And it, you know, although it sounds like a technical kind of issue, I think it, as Sally said, it goes to our our nature. Or our character as a nation, you know, we like to think of ourselves as a generous nation, and and you know, we've never been a leading aid donor, but we did. We used to be sort of average around the average, and now we're right down the bottom. And in fact, you know, if we look at the traditional aid donors who've been giving aid for a long time, there are about twenty-two of them, and um, there are only two that are actually less generous in Australia. So we have gone from sort of being average in the middle of the pack to being right down the bottom. And as to what's driven that, I think there are a few things. I think this, first of all, the the conservative government wanted to cut the deficit and aid was one of the few things they could actually, they didn't need to pass legislation for. So they found it was a relatively easy target. Uh, There's a big priority on uh, increasing defence spending. And I think that has somewhat crowded out uh, spending on foreign aid. Uh, We have seen the rise of, um, you know, One Nation and they did pretty well in the uh, in the elections, and I think that sort of spooked the uh, conservative side of politics, and they're worried about being attacked for an increase in aid by someone like Pauline Hanson or, or Jackie Lambie, and that that line that charity begins at home. I think, although as you said, there is public support for aid, uh, it's maybe it's not that deep. I mean, people don't really vote on the basis of, of the aid, and I think there is a sense in the Australian community, you know, that yeah, we have been we've been doing it tough for a while. I mean, if you even if you look at um, donations to uh, non-government organisations, I mean, that's also been trending down. You know, not as sharply as the uh, as the government aid budget, but that has also been heading in a negative direction. So I, even, I think the community support for aid hasn't really, been, uh, hasn't really been that strong. So, yeah, I think there's a whole range of factors that explain it. it it's, you know, I'm, I'm not giving up. I think these things wax and wane. And um, it is, even though right now the government's not prepared to commit to further aid increases, I think given the regional needs and also given that we, we want to be a global player and we want to be at summits like the G7, you, you know, be I mean, be we're, we, we've been invited to the G7 this year, but we're and we're regularly, obviously, a member of the G20. Uh, we also need to play at that level. And if you look at our aid contributions relative to other G7 countries, they really don't stack up. So yeah, I'm I, I think it could well be reversed, but yeah, there are a number of factors that have got us to where we are now. Can I just say, I think it's your data, Stephen, from the Dev Policy Centre that shows really long-term contribution to um, to ODA over time waxes and wanes with the experience of a government. So governments often come into power going, let's save money so that we can put it to our own priorities. So they cut it from aid because there's no very few domestic stakeholders there. And like you say, you can remove the money pretty easily. It's like an ATM without legislation. Um, but then by the second term of any government, back to the Hawke government, you start seeing Seeing them recognise the benefits to Australia's national interest from development and the benefits from doing the right thing as well. And you can start seeing that the ODA proportion increases through the second term and beyond. This government's the only government that's really um, kicked that by by not learning that lesson by the third term now. So I think it's, it's, um, it's worth noting and I do think that there's internal politics around this, um, both from the outside, Pauline Hanson, for example, and one 
nation, but also internally. You know, there are a number of coalition MPs who watch like a hawk everything that comes out of DFAT's mouth and uh, straight on to the minister if there's any issues there. So there's a lot of um, internal considerations that they've got to manage as well. Um, and, you know, even the Labor Party is is pretty clear that there's no votes in aid. You know, people do care about it, but not enough. And when I was the CEO at CARE um, during the, drought, the Australian drought in 2018, you know, we were seeing a lot of social media um, kickback to our, us asking for donations for, um, you know, the, 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 the terrible poverty and humanitarian disasters in our region by people saying, well, we need to give it to the Aussie farmers. Why are we giving it to Indonesians? And charity does begin at home. Yes, of course, that's not where the biblical prophecy statement ends, It, um, but it doesn't end there, of course. Um, so I think we do have a lot of lessons to learn and Leadership in this is really important. People do respond to to their government's leadership and the messaging that comes from government, and we're not seeing a change um, that would would mean that we do see the Australian public position itself differently. So we're sort of stuck in a quagmire, really. I think that's a, a good time for us to take a quick break, and we'll come back in just a moment to go into some of these issues a little further. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. I'm still here with Stephen Howes and Sally Moyle and we're talking about Australia's aid program. Before the break, we were discussing Australia's aid spending um, and particularly that sort of downward trajectory of aid spending and the lack of, of support broadly in Australia for the development assistance budget. But now I just wanted to take a, a closer look at some of the priorities of the Australian aid budget and to come back to gender equality. We touched on this before the break. The Australian government has allocated $65 million for global and regional gender equality initiatives in 2021-22. And of course, Australia has a very long and quite proud history around gender equality issues. And Sally, we already talked a little about the important role that Australia played in the, the women's movement in the Pacific and the Fiji Crisis Centre in particular. What kinds of things does Australia focus on in terms of gender equality and women's human rights within the aid program? And what are the current priorities for Australia mm. on those issues? Well, the Australian government recognises that 
every dollar we spend ought to be able to contribute to gender equality, whether you're working on infrastructure or education uh, or whatever sector you're working in. Everything needs to push together towards changing the norms that apply across the globe around gender equality. And we say the same thing as I'm a member of the women's movement in Australia. We say the same thing to our government domestically. We all need to be working together no matter what we're doing. Uh, And if people are not contributing to gender equality or exacerbating inequalities by their behaviour in, say, an infrastructure program in Indonesia, then we're not speaking with one voice and our partners will know that we're not serious about it. So it's absolutely important that every dollar we spend is able to to demonstrate how it can contribute to gender equality. And so, for example, in an infrastructure program, um, you know, you can impl- make sure that you have targets for employment of women so that women benefit from the intervention in the in their community. You can have targets around where the roads go to so they're not they're, su- they're suiting the lives of women as well as men, um, where women are safe as pedestrians because we know women are more likely to be pedestrians than men. There's all sorts of things that you can do in any mainstream program to contribute to gender equality. So Australian government, like other um, donor governments, have always said we want to make sure that all of our funding is able to contribute to gender equality. And Australia eight, nine years ago, established a target that 80% of all of our programs would effectively contribute to gender equality. Um, and it was, in fact, one of 10 aid targets and the only one that was never met. Um, it's unfortunate, therefore, that it was discontinued recently without ever having been met. Uh, so Australia never met that 80% target. It came close, but how, never how did. How far short did we fall? And a percent or two. So so actually, that can also be 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 framed as a success. I mean, almost meeting 80%. Right. And, is, and is it not was too rigorous, bad. right? It was seen in DFAT as the the most carefully um, considered target. It, 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 there was moderation and kind of peer review of each of the ratings so that it was done carefully. Um, anyway, now Australia has focused more on expenditure and we say that uh, we're looking for 60% of our expenditure to either be a principal or significant um, contribution to gender equality, principal being that the point of the expenditure or significant, meaning that we've put careful thought into whatever sector it is uh, and that we will make sure that there are gender equality outcomes from that expenditure. So uh, that's okay. Um, but uh, And the OECD Development Assistance Committee has put a lot of work in, supported by Australia, to making sure that those measures are rigorous. Um, but Australia is falling short compared to some of our peers. So Canada, for example, has a, has achieved 95% of its ratings saying that uh, all of the expenditure is making a contribution to gender equality. The question is how each of those donors assesses it and how rigorous they are. Um, I personally would rather see a more rigorous and lower assessment um, if you could show that the processes were tough enough to, to really be true. And what kind of principles do we need to have in place, Sally, to make that process rigorous? Well, you need to have gender expertise involved in it. You need to have gender advisors who are able to hold program managers' feet to the fire. I mean, their tendency is going to be, our program's great, of course it is. Um, And you need someone to say, yes, but, you know, we visited your program last year and I can tell you that these things need uh, are still a challenge for you. You need So you need to know that you've got proper peer review um, internally to the aid program and ideally externally as well. Ideally, you would have... Um, local NGOs or local practitioners or or people who benefit from the program participating in that assessment as well. So, you know, this is can't be something where a donor internally claps itself on the back and tells us it's doing a fabulous job. So I think part of the, the thing is looking at what the process is and how rigorous that process is that's important. 
Stephen, what's your overall impression of how effective the Australian government has been in regard to promoting gender equality through the aid program? And particularly, do you think there is sufficient investment for us to contribute to progressing towards Sustainable Development Goal 5, which is the goal that focuses on gender equality and securing the human rights of women? Uh, well, I think gender uh, equality has has definitely become a strength of the aid program, and I think it's it is one of um, I think it's really credit to well, it's credit to people like Sally, but uh, at the political level, credit to people to, to to Julie Bishop, mm-hmm. I think the former minister of foreign affairs. I think she really took it to the next level, and you know it's being sustained uh, by the uh, by the current minister uh, for foreign affairs and um, the minister for international development. But yeah, what I mean, I'd say more. So I, I, I'm not going to, you know, criticise Australia for not doing enough on gender. I'm sure we could always do more, but I think as Sally said, we're doing a lot. I think the problem is a sort of deeper one that the – it goes back to what I was saying uh, on the level of aid. I mean, it's the same in terms of what our, our aid program is about. We don't see the government um, getting out and selling the aid program mm-hmm. and, and talking about what it's for. I mean, uh, as far as I know, Maurice Payne uh, has never made a speech about foreign aid. And, you know, while Julie Bishop uh, presided over these massive aid cuts, you know, we know they weren't her initiative. And and to give her credit, she she was passionate about aid. Mm. You know, she, she took the aid program in new directions. She set up new benchmarks, set up a number of new initiatives. Some haven't lasted, like the Innovation Exchange I think is pretty, you know, sort of a pale shadow of what it used mm-hmm. to be. Um, but some have lasted, like the greater emphasis on gender. So under Julie Bishop, uh, the aid program, even though it was reducing in size, ha- had a sort of forward momentum. I think, uh, you know, we haven't seen that uh, since Julie Bishop left. Now with COVID, I mean, there's a natural focus, right? We want to get people vaccinated. We want to help help governments respond. So in a way, the kind of job's been done for the government. But... But, you know, going forward, I think that's the challenge for the government is to get out there and to not not just sell the AIR program, but to, to really give it direction. I think and to, uh, without direction at the political level, it's, you know, however capable the bureaucrats are in uh, DFAT, there's only there's only so much uh, that they can do. So, yeah, that would be my response, you know, both on gender and, and all the very other, you know, good issues, good causes that the, the AIR program uh, prosecutes, yeah, it it really needs more political visibility and political leadership. I agree with you, Stephen, and and, and I also think that you know DFAT's doing as best a job as it can with the how stretched it is at the moment and the the loss of expertise around aid over the last eight years as well. Um, but it shows in things like the ability to really think of aid as a whole program, you know, and what we need to do in order to have an effective program. So, you know, we've lost effectively the Office of Development Effectiveness and that oversight model um, of of effective aid. We've lost the ability to think about what are the ingredients needed so that we can measure our progress. So, for example, there's a real focus through the SDGs on data and we know in in the Asia-Pacific and particularly Oceania-Pacific region, um, there's a real dearth of data, particularly around gender equality um, goal. And so in Oceania, there are certain um, countries we haven't got 
and certain indicators of the SDGs that we haven't got any data at all. So how do we know uh, how how we're progressing or how well we're going? But that's something that's not very sexy, right? It's not a great, it's not a sexy announceable for a minister. And so as a result, we we haven't had that um, ability to really see the program as a whole and to figure out what we need to do, sexy or not, and announceable or not, but just what we need to do in order to have an effective program and to do to invest in things like data. So those things are being dropped off and lost by the wayside, I think. So Sally, later this month, there's an important global event happening, the the Generation Equality Forum, where discussions will focus on how transformative shifts are necessary to progress the Beijing Platform for Action, which governments committed to way back in in the mid-1990s around women's rights. Australia, as as we said earlier, has often played that really important leadership role globally on gender equality issues, but on a whole range of issues. What's Australia's role likely to be at that forthcoming forum? You know, Mm -hmm. there is very much a focus on on data and gender data Mm -hmm. globally, but, but, but where's Australia going to be positioned in those conversations? Well, so far Australia hasn't committed in relation to generation equality uh, and, you know, reasonably there's a a lack of information coming from UN women about what the frameworks are and where we're heading Um, and so Australia's saying quite reasonably we're waiting to see what it is we're being asked to commit to. But I think that Australia's role internationally has always been as a strong multilateral partner uh, and I would have really liked to have seen Australia step into that position and say, well, let's make sure that we're involved in the conversation so that we can be assured that the commitments that we're being asked to make are things that are the right commitments to make and that we can deliver on them. So I would have liked to have seen Australia take a much more strong leadership role like some other OECD donor partners are doing Um but Australia hasn't done that, and so we're now hanging back a bit and just watching and waiting. I know that the Australian government's um, still committed to multilateral agreements because we know that as a middle player in the geopolitics of the world at the moment, um, we need to have a strong multilateral system that can protect us and protect everybody's interests. So I, I know that Australia is committed. I would have liked to have seen us take a more a leadership role on it already. Yeah, I just think that also has broader application. Perhaps one issue we haven't sort of touched enough on or, or really at all you know like it's a fairly gloomy uh, story about mm. aid and perhaps outlook but if you look at aid going to the Pacific region it's actually more Australian aid going to the Pacific than ever before so you don't see that aid cut in the Pacific and that you know Sally mentioned how governments over time find the aid program useful so certainly you know what has really rescued the aid program has been the Pacific step up that uh, desire by Australia to do more in the Pacific which is really driven by geopolitics and and the uh, the perceived need to compete with China. So that's, you know, it's good. Well, yeah, it, whether or not it's good for the Pacific, I think we can we can debate because I think you can have too, there, there can be too much aid and the Pacific is already a very aid-dependent region, but it, it's good for the aid program. I think the challenge is the one Sally mentioned, you know, we've really dropped the ball, even though we talk the language of multilateralism, you know, that's, uh, we, we haven't really, we're not really following through. And you see that very much in our COVID response. You know, we're providing vaccines to Papua New Guinea and, uh, some Southeast Asian countries, but we're not contributing uh, anywhere near uh, the amount we should to the global uh, vaccine effort. Yeah, so we talk the language of multilateralism, but we're not really following through. I'd say. Yeah, and Stephen, you you mentioned that the the 
shift towards the Pacific and the Pacific step up, in part is driven by geopolitics. And of course, any aid program is is going to be driven by a whole range of issues, not only humanitarian concerns. But what's your um, view on what may be presented as the closer linking of Australia's strategic foreign policy objectives and the aid program. Is that something that's that's good for the aid program because it sees greater investment or are there, there things that we need to be concerned about with that? Yeah, I think it's 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 a it is a, a two edged sword. I mean, it's good for the aid program because it does provide that political support uh, for the for the aid program. Uh, it sort of provides an underpinning, but yeah, there are obvious risks. Um, it goes back to what we we're talking about effectiveness. You know, if you're if you're trying to compete with another country, then you're probably going to give more emphasis. I mean, there'll be some good sides to it because you'll you'll listen more. To what the the recipient governments actually want, right? You'll you'll give their weight more. Oh, sorry, you you give their attitude more weight, and and we know that's really important for the success of aid programs that the governments actually want them. But on the downside, you know, you'll probably also give more weight to things like launches mm. and kind of high profile uh, ribbon cutting events because you're out there in that sort of battle for hearts and minds. So yeah, and, and it can also lead to quite short term uh, decision making. So it can make effectiveness uh, t- take a back seat. I mean, I, I personally, I think you know, although I, I work a lot on aid, pro- the aid program, I think aid's important. But personally, where I hope this the Pacific step up takes us, is it should be a step up beyond aid. Uh, as I said, the Pacific already gets a lot of foreign aid. Australia needs to think about other instruments. Uh, we we have started to now interact with the Pacific much more using labour mobility, allowing Pacific Islanders to come to Australia. I think that's a kind of very positive development uh, from the from the step up, and I think that's where we should be focusing on. I'd like to see the aid program focus much more, uh, as Sally was saying, on the sort of the the broader uh, Asian and also uh, global challenges. Sally, you made a, a comment in passing where you said over the the past eight years or so, um, there's been a, um, a a dropping off of expertise around development within DFAT, um, and I assume that dates to uh, the merger of um, AusAid into DFAT. Can you just talk us through a little bit more um, what some of the implications have been of moving? AusAid, which was a designated agency for international development, into DFAT. And of course, this is a debate that's had in many countries, not just Australia, about whether the aid program should sit within the Department of Foreign Affairs or outside. So in your experience with both AusAid and DFAT, what has been the implications mm. of, of, of that <clears throat> shift? Well, you know, there are pros and cons. I think AusAid, and Stephen was my boss in AusAid back in the day, um, I think AusAid was really aiming to become an effective development organisation and, uh, you know, to be a learning organisation and have a real depth of knowledge. So when it cracked into DFAT, uh, it, it was a culture shock for both of those organisations. Um, what it did deliver is the ability to consider um, development as a tool of our international engagement along with foreign policy so that the idea was that the two tools work effectively together and the left hand knew what the right hand was doing. And that's that has happened. That's more likely to have happened. But we did lose that depth of knowledge and that expertise. You know, I used to say to people in the early days of the, inter- of the integration 
um, development is an actual profession. You know, you can't just pick it up and do it with five minutes notice. It's not um, like that. So, so there's a lot that has been lost and a lot of people who felt that they couldn't work under the new circumstances have left, you know, and so it, it has been really, uh, it has been, we have seen a loss of depth of knowledge and that's a pity, I think, because as I say, it means that while there's some still great and thoughtful development programming going on in DFAT now, what we have lost is the overall ability of an organisation to look at the aid program as a whole and figure out what we need to do and what we where, where we're lacking and how we need to learn better and be more effective. So I think that that's uh, what we've lost. Yeah, I mean, there were a number of um, sort of principal advisors, specialists who've... Um who kind of led the uh, intellectual effort, a number of them have left. So you were actually the, yes. the principal gender advisor. That's right. Is there now one in, in uh, DFAT? Now we've got an ambassador for gender equality. So right. um, there's no principal specialists anymore, mm. I don't think. And uh, uh, that's, that is that is a real pity, you know, that there was an investment in, in understanding of, of sexual and thematic expertise that, that we haven't got anymore, I think. We've got specialists there. We've got some fabulous specialists with deep, deep knowledge, but I don't think it's given quite the same prominence in the organisation as it was. Yeah, it has been a trend around the world. Um, so Canada has done it, New Zealand, now the UK mm. has done it. I think it's only in the United States right. that you actually have a dedicated aid agency. So I guess uh, this integration is the way of the future. But yeah, it is telling in a number of other countries, Canada and the UK, when they did the merger, they did change the name of mm. the um, the Department of Foreign Affairs to include the term development. Uh, I think that was a sort of positive signal that we, we uh, didn't follow through on in Australia and perhaps, you know, that's kind of that signalled and, and represents the, the lack of priority given mm. to development as an objective as well as to development expertise. So we, we've lost some of that really deep development expertise that, that AusAid had. Have we been able to maintain country expertise and deep knowledge of the countries, particularly in, in our region, the Pacific in, in Southeast Asia? Sally, what's your understanding of that country expertise? Well, it's a different, it's a different way of working, isn't it? You know, the development way of working is to get out, out into the countryside and speak to real people and, and have relationships with middle level government, um, partners. I think those are the, those are the things that an aid program depends on. Um, and I know that when we integrated with, when AusAid integrated with DFAT, it delivered a whole range of relationships that DFAT as foreign policy pe- practitioners hadn't really had access to before. So, I would have, I would have liked to have seen a lot more recognition of the depth of those relationships and the benefit that it can contribute to Australia's understanding, not in terms of intelligence, but just in terms of um, deep understanding of the context in which we're working. So I think they're very different ways of working, foreign policy wise, um, which is focused on power structures and people who hold power, um, compared to development, which is much more about communities and the networks out there. So they're very different ways of working and different forms of knowledge, I think. Yeah, I think it also reflects again the the Pacific step up. So I think you know now we have the Office of the Pacific, which is just which is huge and mm. does uh, bring together a lot of expertise uh, on the Pacific. So I think probably in the Pacific, our country knowledge is probably is pretty good. Mm. But I would say beyond the Pacific, uh, we've probably gone backwards. Mm. 
And of course, when we're thinking about the Pacific, one of the, the key issues facing that region is, is climate change or climate emergency. Stephen, can you talk us through a little bit what the, what Australia through the aid program, but also more broadly, is doing to address climate change in the Pacific and to support climate change adaptation amongst our Pacific neighbours? You know, is this something that we're focusing on? Uh, yeah, well, I'd mentioned the Pacific step up as sort of a major driver of Australian uh, foreign policy. And I think, you know, it's widely recognised that Australia's climate policy is a weak point when it comes to our relations with the Pacific, because, you know, we're not seen as really doing enough for what the Pacific sees as a real, as, as a real crisis, if not an existential issue. So actually, the aid program then becomes really important because it is one way the government can show it is in fact taking climate change seriously. I mean, I think it has its limits because ultimately the government's got to take domestic action. You know, I think the Pacific can see through this kind of uh, maneuver. Um, but the result has been a, a greater focus, uh, especially in the Pacific, uh, on on climate change adaptation, and you know that's that's very important. You know, it's it's things like disaster prevention uh, and preparedness. Um, so they're 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 noble activities. I'm not an expert enough to comment. You know exactly how well they're being done. I think the bigger issue is you know to what extent um, this is seen by the this is accepted by the Pacific as a genuine contribution, and to what extent it actually is seen for really what it is, which is something of a fig leaf. And I guess adaptation is one thing, but unless we address the root causes of the looming emergency, then adaptation only takes us so far. <laughs> We're going to have to draw this this conversation to a close. Um, but as we do end, I wanted to ask each of you, what's your number one recommendation that you would give to policymakers around Australia's international development program, the one thing that we really need to be thinking about uh, to ensure that it, it's effective, well-resourced and sustainable. Um, Stephen, perhaps we can go to you first. What's, what's that key, key piece of advice? Uh, well, I go back to the political leadership. I think uh, government has to, has a, you know, it's a, it's a, aid program that is um, some $4.4 billion. So, you know, even though it's smaller than what it used to be, it's still a significant amount of money. I think the government just has to um, get on the front foot. And I, I'd like, you know, the minister, Maurice Payne, to to come to the ANU and, and give a speech on, uh, you know, this is this is uh, why we're giving foreign aid and, and this is how we're we're going to give it and preferably, you know, that we're going to give more in the future. But even if she doesn't go that far, I think to get more political leadership behind the aid program uh, would be really beneficial. Mm. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. <laughs> and I think we need our Prime Minister to have a road to Damascus moment as well about about the aid program to recognise its absolute importance for our region and for Australia's position in our region. I absolutely think that's important. From the policymakers' point of view, I think looking at 
at a more senior level and a holistic level at the aid program, not just being a set of disparate programs that help each bilateral relationship in the region, but uh, as an aid program that Australia is providing to help make the world a better place. Uh, and that means we need to have um, policies, process and effectiveness systems in place. Um, not sexy, but impor- absolutely important if we're going to have an aid program with our significant amount of funding, $4 billion, that's going to actually make the world a better place to be. Sally Moyle, Stephen House, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a great conversation that's been both broad and deep, so we really appreciate the expertise that that you've shared with us. Um, And we no doubt will talk to you again sometime over the course of the year to see how we're tracking around our Development Assistance Program. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks a lot, Sharon. Listeners, thanks so much for joining us for this really important discussion today around Australia's International Development Assistance Program. I think what a fantastic set of insights from Stephen and Sally. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Don't forget to reach out to us to let us know what you thought about this episode and also the other things that we're talking about on the pod. You can reach us via Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That's at APPS Policy Forum. Or you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. But the best way to get in touch with us is through our Facebook group. If you just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, you will go directly to us. We'll be back next week with another episode. And next week, my pod partner, Anna Greta Hunter, should be back with us after a few travels around Australia. But for me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.